and amen. Well, 34 years ago, on this very day, I married Teresa Marie Kelleher in the backyard, in the backyard of her childhood home on 22 Orchard Street in the hillside neighborhood of Medford, Massachusetts. So I had to get up early and get here before I saw her happy anniversary, Angel Face. Uh, she was beautiful on that day, and I guess I didn't clean up too bad myself. Um, as you can imagine, there was an awful lot about marriage that Teresa and I did not understand that day about maintaining what the Bible refers to as a one-flesh marriage. The truth is, at that point in time, neither one of us understood the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we sort of kind of operated in a vague way around who God was. Now, looking back 34 years ago, from the beginning, we did wrestle with some pretty important questions as we began the process of co-mingling our income and, and thinking about our possessions and our wealth together. How much wealth would actually satisfy us? What values did we share and in what places were our perspectives different? How much could we earn and how much should we earn? And, and how hard would we work in order to pursue that end? Should we budget? And if we were going to budget, what will we buy? What's going to be our spending priorities? What would we share with others? And would that actually be anything at all? Well, maybe sitting here, you're wrestling with some of those same questions today. And, and our story is that we can see how God, in his ever-present mercy, called us over time into relationship with him. And he began to change our beliefs and our attitudes and our behaviors as, as we surrendered to the Spirit of God that was beginning to shape us as followers of Jesus Christ. And so from all of the many questions that we asked ourselves during that season in our life, one key question emerged over time as we've read God's word and we've listened to his voice. And it's this. Would we freely pursue a lifestyle of generosity? This question forms my main point this morning. It's, it's one that I want to pose to you. And so if you'll just open up your Bibles, turn on your smartphones, uh, turn to today's text from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. Here, as you're turning, we're going to see, I think, a very familiar encounter that Jesus has with the, what we call the rich young ruler, and as we consider that story, it's my prayer that the word of the Lord challenges every one of us as it sort of penetrates our hearts in faith and then moves us not just to belief and attitude, but actually moves us to action. So let's pick up in verse 13 in the Gospel of Mark. Here it says, And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, And why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, come, he says, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had, Mark says, great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and he said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So this morning, uh, my, my first encouragement is that we really need, if we're going to get to the heart of this issue, we need to understand the basic heart of generosity. In the text that we just read, Mark records an episode uh, involving children that I think is going to help us understand this just a little bit, what a heart that's sensitive to the kingdom values of God looks like. For this, I've leaned a little bit in on a friend and writer, Danny Aiken, who's helped me to understand and extract a few principles that we can approach Jesus just like little children, even in this area of generosity. You see, like little children, we come to Jesus helpless but hopeful. Verse 14 says, But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. Listen for to such belongs the kingdom of God. You see, by their very nature, children's lives are in the hands of someone else. Oftentimes, they don't know all that they need, but especially parents, you know this, instinctually, they know they need the help of someone else, and they maintain a hope that somebody will actually meet that need. Children, especially in the time of Jesus, had no clout. They had no standing. They brought nothing to the encounter with Jesus 
except themselves. Also, like little children, we can come to Jesus trusting and dependent. If you look in your Bible in verse 15, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. You see, he, here Jesus says that the kingdom of God is received. 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 It's not earned. It's received like a little child, or I submit it's not received at all. You see, by their display of trust and their absolute dependence on someone else, children point the way to entrance in God's kingdom. And then, like little children, all of us, we can come to Jesus for affection and blessing and even provision. Verse 16, it says, and he took them in his arms and he blessed them. And that blessing would have been a blessing that would have been familiar, a blessing of provision. And he laid his hands on them. Did you notice that it says here that Jesus picked up the children? It's something we get a little icky about today. But it's important that we notice that he was tender. He was affectionate to those who brought nothing to him except their need. He picked them up. He held these children. He spoke words of blessing over them. He attached a high value to who they were, their intrinsic worth. His commitment for their well-being was sure, and he would not fail them. And so this morning, what I want us to see, to understand, if we want to get to the heart of generosity, we have to simply start by seeing the heart that's displayed in this encounter. You see, when we assume the posture of being helpless and yet hopeful, hopeful in what? hopeful in the goodness of God. When we trust him for all of our dependent needs, many of them we're not even aware of. And when we open ourselves up to receive the words of blessing as he commits himself to fulfill, just like he did as he blessed these children, it's then, in that moment, at that threshold, that we can truly position ourselves to not only receive, but then to also release all that he has for us. You see, one thing Teresa and I have learned over 34 years, we don't have to clench our fists to hold on to everything that's within our reach. And we don't have to strive to reach more. So my prayer for us this morning is that as we see generosity, um, that we see the natural connection that occurs, the intimate connection that occurs when we bring a heart of childlike faith to God himself. You see, generosity is the giving away of what came from God to us in the first place. We come to him with nothing except need. He calls for our trust and faith. 
He is our provider. And then we receive the privilege of becoming an extension of his benevolence, his goodness, his provision to others. And we do that as individuals, and we also do that collectively as the body of Christ. It brings me to my second encouragement that we should really be pursuing a life of generosity. I think that can, we can see illustrated in our next story beginning in verse 17. Here we see a man. Luke calls him a ruler. Matthew calls him a young man. Mark here makes it clear that he's rich and so we tend to call him the rich young ruler. In many sermons, he's actually painted in a very negative way, almost vilified. But I think if you look closely at what Mark tells us, we'll see that Jesus actually encounters him as sincere. His questions to Jesus, they're fair. His posture, the way that he conducts himself, it's respectful. And his answers, even though maybe we don't like them, his answers do seem truthful. It does look like he believes in the future resurrection of his body and of a life to come after death. And so it seems like he understands that participation in eternal life, life after death, cannot be taken for granted. And so he asks what many see as the critical question. Verse 17, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, if you still have your Bible open and you're kind of flipping through, you'll see quickly that there's a back and forth dialogue between Jesus and this rich young ruler. And then afterwards, there, that dialogue continues between Jesus and his disciples. And, and what becomes clear in the middle of all of that dialogue back and forth is this. Following Jesus is the one thing that qualifies one for entering the kingdom of God, for obtaining salvation, to aspiring to eternal life. Sadly, for this young ruler, this conflict was too difficult for him to adore because he had something else that competed for that one thing. In the end, we learn that it was his trust in all the wealth and position and power that he had accumulated that provided his ultimate security. It was much greater for him in that moment than following Jesus and making that a distant second. Now sadly, for some of us gathered here today and perhaps listening through the live stream, we might have one thing that challenges us in following Jesus. It could be money, I suspect, in our nation. Oftentimes it is the place of wealth, but it could be something else. It's not the only thing that creates a barrier. As long as one thing competes with what Jesus says is the one thing, his radical, uncompromising statement stands true. Whatever the one thing is that we hold, he says it needs to be released. Now, here's the good news around something that sounds really hard. For the rich young ruler, it sounded hard. 
and maybe it sounds hard to you. But when we easily go to the right person, that's Jesus, and we ask the right question, what must I do to be saved, and we get the right answers from him, and it's really simple, he says surrender all, and then we give the right response, I surrender all, then life in the kingdom of God becomes radically upside down. Upside down in amazing ways. Um, Ultimately, we can learn from this that you leave what is really in the scale of eternity very little in order to get what is extraordinarily a lot. And here Mark tells us also that contrary to the way our society functions, being last really means you get to cut the line and come in first. And this encounter, I think, kind of encapsulates this whole idea of what does it mean to be a generous person flowing out of the truths that are learned here. My prayer for us this morning is that if we're honest, for those of us that live in a fairly materialistic culture like the USA, when the vast majority of the world looks to the American church, including Redemption Hill Church, and sees incredible wealth, that our proclamation of salvation by faith in Christ alone is matched by the release of our hidden idol of wealth. That unlike the man in our story, our our hearts become alive in Christ and it produces a willingness, a freedom, a joy to surrender everything in our lives, including our wealth, if that is the need, if that is the conviction, and if that is the call to the eternal glory the eternal glory of his name. And so, this morning, I want to turn our attention for a few minutes to a super practical exploration of what it can mean as followers of Jesus living, I assume, in a posture of salvation and surrender and release. What's that look like as we strive to take next steps in what I'm calling a generosity journey at Redemption Hill Church. Now, before I take this dive, I realize that generosity can occur outside the life of the church, and it should. Time won't allow me to cover it in its broadest level. This morning, I want us to hone our focus in a little bit as one important place of release. And so to guide us, we've developed a little bit of a visual model. I'm a visual learner, and I think can help us to think about growth in biblical generosity. And we think this model uh, is a reflection of God's heart. We think it captures uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and and operates under the freeing power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, This particular tool, it's really to help us as a people to move from money being a controlling idol to being a tool readily usable within God's kingdom. And it focuses, I believe, when it's fully understood, on attitudes of the heart, the very attitudes we saw with childlike faith in the beginning. 
Um, these are not, just before I dive in, these are not legal steps to get you to God. The assumption is that at this stage of the, in, in our story, that you've yielded, and now you want to learn, how do I grow? How do I mature? And you want to evaluate where you are in that journey. So let me, uh, let me start off by walking you through. Um, if you find yourself and you've never actually given a financial gift, whether you're here in the theater or you're, you're operating online somehow, um, the very first thing you can do is you can consider participating for simply your first time. And, and honestly, you may not have known how to give at Redemption Hill Church. And so if you're newer at Redemption Hill Church, you may have noticed that we actually don't have a spot in our worship service to sort of pass the basket and collect financial gifts. Uh, even before COVID, we had sort of two, two realizations as a church. The first one is, especially for folks that are newer to us, um, that can sometimes feel uh, a little coercive, a little, a, little, um, uh, a little hard and harsh. And offerings are always our opportunity to worship God with what he's given us. But we also want to create an environment that's sensitive to those that are exploring. And so we recognize that awkwardness is in place. But then, more importantly... Um, we wanted to make sure that generosity flows from a place of freedom, a place of joy. The truth is, we never want to receive a gift from anyone that's been given grudgingly or as there's any measure of compulsion. And in fact, the only guilt, even if I use that word, that we would encourage is just simply the conviction of the Holy Spirit moving upon the heart of a follower of Jesus Christ. And then there's also the practical reality that as our culture has moved from checks and cash to digital giving. It made sense for us to migrate in that direction as well. And the offering moment became a little bit awkward um, for those that are participating in that. And so today, if you desire, as your first step in growing in generosity, um, if you desire to begin doing that, there's a, there's a simple next step that you can do. You ready for it? It's really remarkable. Give a first gift. You may be concerned that you don't have enough to be able to give anything. And so let me be clear. The scriptures are abundantly clear that a gift offered in humility will be received by our Father. The amount for you today is not as important as a decision to begin. So in faith, just, just simply begin. If you look, I encourage us to buy out the ROT app. There's all kinds of directions that you can follow on how to give. Some of you like to use cash and checks, and that's why outside the door we have a collection box, and you can drop something in there. Um, many of you use mobile giving. That's terrific. Some of you even like to mail checks to our P.O. box. That's great. Again, the first step on a generosity journey experienced within the life of the church is to give your first time. Then once a first-time gift is offered, you're now on your way walking towards a life of maturing generosity. And so for some of you, that can mean responding to opportunities occasionally. Uh, sometimes it's when you're made aware of a need or there's a, you're specifically asked. Sometimes there's a cause. Like one of the things I've noticed here is historically we like to, to give away turkey meals on Thanksgiving. And people love to hear about that need and respond specifically to that need because that appeal touches their heart. There's something basic about meeting the needs of hunger. Sometimes we give when we come to church because it reminds us 
Sometimes we give when we find there's a little extra in our paycheck. Um, but if you've given as a first-time giver, our best recommendation is to move on to becoming a more occasional giver. And uh, that, would, that would simply be repeat what you've learned how to do. Do it again. Ask the Holy Spirit of God to create a responsiveness to his prompting in your generosity. Perhaps today, your simple next step is not just to give, but to give again. Now, as you grow as an occasional giver, you may find yourself here in what we call an intentional giver. You're finding that the Spirit of God is beginning to invite you to be a little bit less irregular, a little less reactive to your giving, a little less casual, because you're beginning to sense all that he has actually entrusted to your care. And so we'd encourage you to begin to think about growing towards being an intentional giver, taking steps that speak to, the, to commitment. And so I want to sit here for a minute and just describe the characteristics that we believe are biblical characteristics of what an intentional giver looks like. An intentional giver gives regularly. That frequency could be weekly, monthly. We even have some that give annually one time because their uh, employer runs a matching program. And so they've intentionally organized it to grow their gift. For some of you, uh, you work commission-based. Your regular giving could be tied to the regularity of your commissions. But there should be a predictable pattern to the giving that we extend in the name of Christ. That also has a second characteristic, and that is it's wise to give systematically. Paul gives great encouragement throughout his letters in this approach. It involves identifying a plan. How will I give? And however you decide to do it, some of the options I outlined for you before, if you're married, enter into it with mutual accountability. If you're single, consider inviting somebody in to help you to think about it for accountability. If you're a child and you hear this, talk to your parent about how to make that arrangement. And if you're unsure about how to make those arrangements, you can speak to a member of our finance team. A third key biblical characteristic of an intentional giver is that they offer the first fruits of what God has already given them. You see, there's a sense that the best of what I have, the priority of my giving, um, is important. And the attitude is that there's an avoidance of just sharing out of leftovers, but instead sharing first. When my children were growing up and I began to teach them about how to share I'd peel off dollar bills during their allowance time. And the first dollar bill that I'd peel off, this was when they were young, I'd say, who gets the first dollar? And they would say, God gets the first dollar. And they would take it, and they would put it into their little offering envelope to be able to bring it to church. That's the attitude of first fruits. Who gets the first? And then the biblical characteristic of an intentional giver is that they give proportionally. Now... We encourage people to prayerfully ask and seek, Lord, what is it that you want me to surrender on a regular, systematic, first fruit basis? We do recommend as elders to identify a percentage. We think that helps um, us to pursue a goal that adjusts 
as we are blessed and even as we struggle. Some are familiar with the concept of the tithe. The tithe we hold is, a, is an Old Testament teaching that 10% of our income is a first fruit that's devoted. We think that's a great concept. We're not certain as elders that we're held to 10%. The truth is, if you look at um, all of the Old Testament teaching, a generous um, a Jew would actually surrender about 33% of their income after they looked at all of the offerings that were available to them. We think it's a healthy marker and a good benchmark to think about. The important question is, will you bring the, um, the discipline of that question to God and say, Lord, what's the proportion of what you've entrusted to me? And then finally, we think that there's a, a key biblical principle around being an intentional giver, that an intentional giver shares through the local church, that they're committed to build God's kingdom through that church because they believe that the local church is the embodiment of God's mission where he has planted that church. And it doesn't mean that charitable giving can't occur outside of the church. A truly generous people are generous in all spheres of life. But we like to think of it this way. If those of us gathered are really all in, in joining the mission of RHC, and that's expressed through our worship attendance when we worship together, our participation in community through our groups, in serving with and for each other in our teams, in praying in alignment and in sync on God's mission through us. And it just seems reasonable for us to focus our resources, to see that the mission and those other expressions thrive and do well. So if today you're a first-time giver or an occasional giver and, and you're looking to be a, 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 an intentional giver that's reflective of all of those characteristics, then maybe your next step is just to become more regular in your generosity, to look at your calendar, to consider how your income flows, to identify the best giving pattern that works for you, and then aim for consistency. You may decide that you have to select and become a little bit more systematic in your approach, just so that whatever mechanism you use, that there's a, a pattern and a predictability and a surety that your opportunity to worship through offering occurs. Definitely decide that the first dollar of what God has given to you is surrendered to honor him as the priority of your generosity. You may want to look at your household budget and you may want to look at your giving goals proportionally. Some of you here have never budgeted. And so it may be that you need to start with dealing with your household budget. And that's why we offer at Redemptional Church, Financial Peace University as an equipped class because we really want God's people to thrive in biblical understanding of managing what he's entrusted. And so if you aren't sure even how to do that, then let us know and we're going to be happy to help you. Some of you are giving regularly and proportionally and systematically, but you've maybe said it and forget it and you haven't revisited it. Make sure that you don't allow all those um, principles to stop you critically thinking about what you've set up and you're done. And then finally, just simply choose to uh, support the mission of what God is doing in Greater Medford through Redemption Hill Church. Whatever one of those areas God is calling you towards, I encourage you to become 
uh, a more intentional giver and experience the joy that comes through that. Now, you might find yourself in a place where you say, John, I am an intentional giver. Um, you know, what, what more can I do? And as you grow in that intentionality, you may be tempted to play it a little safe, to sometimes maintain your financial comfort, to make certain that not only your needs are met, but a lot of your wants are met. I, I'm guilty of that. I certainly uh, can learn and grow. And so for us, we encourage you to move towards being a sacrificial giver. The scriptures commend overwhelmingly that God gives us the grace and the freedom to enjoy many of the abundant blessings that he's given us. But we also have a model of a savior who sacrifices and who gives selfish, selflessly. A sacrificial giver is one who gives above and beyond what might be expected. A sacrificial giver, the scriptures teach, is one who looks at their own comfort and in freely offers, listen, the offering isn't just an amount or a percentage. The offering back to God is the discomfort that that giving entails. A sacrificial giver, instead of asking the question, what am I giving, is going to ask the question, what am I giving up? See, to become a sacrificial giver, one that the entirety of the scriptures commends, giving must cost us. And by costing us, it can feel risky. And as you sacrifice, what we've discovered is that the freedom to deny yourself something, anything, with joy, fuels a greater sense of worship. I so heartily believe that. And so if you're here this morning and, and you desire to sort of move towards becoming a sacrificial giver, then the most basic thing you need to do is evaluate your personal comfort. And then once you've done that, choose a specific way. I'm not going to tell you what way. That's going to be between you and, and our Father. But choose some way that you deny yourself of something of value so that you can then give in sacrifice. Now, this could be a one-time gift. It could be an amount. Sometimes it can be a season of sacrifice. I know many of you um, take advantage of a season of Lent for denying. It may be that you need to look at your entire lifestyle and choose something that's a regular sacrifice, not just a one-time sacrifice. It may be for some of us, boomers, are you hearing me? The few of you that are here? It may be that your accumulated possessions, your property, your wealth, what you've saved and tucked away, God may be calling you to some yielding of that. You may want to put God to the test. He encourages us to think of that in Malachi and do a financial fast in order that we can then feast on this idea of godly generosity. And so if you're an intentional giver, I really encourage you to move towards becoming a sacrificial giver. For in the scriptures, and not just the scriptures, 
but the testimony of the saints throughout Christendom have been that great joy, which doesn't seem to make sense, right? Great joy and profound satisfaction has been the testimony of those who have followed Jesus wholeheartedly and then chosen some form of denial in their lives, some giving up of personal comforts, so they can worship in joy through financial offering. And then finally, as we sort of wrap up, there's this fifth that I don't think gets talked a lot about, and that's this idea that as you continue your journey, you may find an increasing conviction that you want to live in such a way that you leave a legacy of lasting impact. You may find yourself feeling more and more committed, not just to giving, but to strategic giving, giving that has a, a kingdom impact, but it flows from kingdom love. We, we call this type of a giver a legacy giver. You see, for a legacy giver, their eagerness is to see the mission of God funded by harnessing all of the wealth that is in their care, that has been entrusted, that they are stewards of. And they begin to ask questions like this. How much do I really need to keep? How much more can I give? And how can I grow what God has entrusted so I can then have the freedom to give even more? Oftentimes, my experience has been that a legacy giver simply caps their personal spending. Many of the ones that I've met, if you talk to them, they have a lifetime giving goal. They see, they have a vision for how they can do that. They weigh everything that's available to them. They evaluate their businesses their savings, their investments, their lifestyle, so that they can maximize their potential to give. They actually, it sounds counterintuitive, they get excited about funding the local church and, and other worthy ministries and missions for a strategic and long-term impact. And oftentimes, their energy as legacy givers extends with a vision that actually goes beyond their death. They see the mission of God long past the day that they leave this earth. And they conduct what's called plan giving. They ask themselves, Lord, with what you've given me, what am I going to do at the end? And they listen to him because they want that kind of an impact. It's been said that you can't take it with you. But you can leave something behind that has lasting and eternal value. So if you aspire to become a legacy giver, um, the most crucial next step that you can take is to understand all the income, all the wealth that you'll ever experience, understand it in the light of eternity, an eternity that lays ahead of each one of us. And then you can take perhaps a step based on some of those characteristics that I just explained to you. You see, in my walk with God... I've needed a constant reminder about my life and the trajectory of eternity. So if you come into my office and you sit at my desk, you'll see a handwritten index card directly in front of me. I stare at it every single day. 
it says Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach me to number my days that I may get a heart of wisdom. You see, that's a reminder to me that this life experience is within the context of eternity future. My days and your days are numbered, but I desire to leave an echo that goes even beyond those days. In this morning's scripture, Jesus certainly confronted the rich young ruler with the concept of eternity. Sadly, the grasp that wealth had as the one thing on his heart, it was too tight. Jesus grieved that he walked away. My prayer for every follower of Christ within the sound of my voice this morning is that we aspire to an on-this-side-of-eternity grasp of the legacy that's available to each and every one of us as we see the mission of God and our ability to participate in it. And so wherever you find yourself in your journey, you might be just beginning learning how to do it. You might be afraid. You might be uncertain. You might be a little apathetic. You might be stale. You might be sitting there on the edge of your seat excited. Take one small step of surrender this morning. Decide to freely, freely, without compulsion, pursue a heart of lifestyle generosity, a heart that's reflective of that childlike faith that we looked at earlier this morning. And then be resolved to give Jesus the one thing that he asks for, everything. He asks for everything that competes with him. I'm going to send every person here this morning an email this morning. You guys know I love my emails. And when you get it, I'm going to ask you to do four quick things. It's not going to take you long, maybe five minutes. Would you open it with a humble and prayerful spirit? Don't just see it as, a, as another annoyance. Would you answer a couple of very simple questions, not complicated? I'm the only one that's going to see your replies. Would you pick at least one step that you'll take in your generosity journey so together all of us are journeying as a people? I can guarantee you that in the next steps that I offer, whether you're the newest person as a guest to Redemption Hill Church or you're a founding member of Redemption Hill Church, there's at least one step that you can take in your generosity journey today. And then I'm kind of hopeful some of you will share some of your thoughts back with me about the joys of generosity as well as some of the challenges. Because I want to learn in this arena as well. 34 years after covenanting with each other for life, Teresa and I were still learning, we're still yielding. Our first, let me tell you, our first hesitant gift together as a one flesh household became just a little bit more occasional. And then as the Spirit of God began to shape us to become more intentional, and we began to find joy in sacrifice because we could know and trust our provider, today we find ourselves 
wanting to leave a legacy that echoes for years to come. And ultimately, all of our giving is with the hope that the giver's name is elevated. We have not been perfect, so I don't want to paint that picture far from it. If time allowed me, I could tell you a lot of our failure stories. But we do encourage you, follow us. Follow us as we follow Jesus. We worship a great and wonderful God. He's generous of heart. He's sacrificial in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in, in, in this morning's reading, we were reminded that what appears in our world to be so terribly complicated can be understood simply if we yield our hearts to you with the trusting faith of a child. So in the coming weeks, we certainly have many questions that each one of us need to discuss with you during our million minutes of word and prayer. But I ask this, Holy Spirit, would you empower each one of us to answer this most important question personally? Lord, help us to wrestle. How can I freely pursue a lifestyle of generosity? And Lord, as we answer that question, would you help your people to proclaim that glory is due your name whenever we bring an offering and whenever we come into your courts. For it's in the generous name of Jesus I pray. Amen and amen.